Well, I'll start off this morning with uh, some life-altering event dates. See if you know the date and what happened. And uh, if for some of you, see if you can identify what you were doing at that time. Here's the first date. I think you'll get this one. September 11th, 2001. We know that, right? It actually has a brand name, 9-11. Now, interestingly enough, uh, some of you, some of you here, maybe about 20% of the auditorium, were not alive then or do not have memories of that day in a personal way. But for those of us that were living on 9-11, we remember it well. I was living in Chicago. We were an hour earlier in the time, and, and I remember Sue knocking on the bathroom door. I was in the middle of shaving, half-shaved, and she said, come and watch this on the TV. And we sat there for the next 30 minutes, my face half-shaved uh, with shaving cream here, watching glued to the television screen as so many of uh, you were in those moments. Next date, January 28th, 1986. January 28th, 1986, the Space Shuttle disaster, the Challenger, blew up. Uh, I was at the Barrie Ontario Curling Club, my short-lived high school curling career, uh, but I remember watching it on the TVs there. Uh, okay, next date, this is, uh, see how many people know that, July 20th, 1969. July 20th, 1969, the moon landing. I was not alive then. Some of you maybe were on that moment. And you, uh, and you uh, took a picture of the TV, you know, to remember the moment, the moon landing. Uh, last date here, none of us were alive for this one, but I don't even have a day. It's June uh, 1215, June the year 1215, the Magna Carta was signed. Most of you don't even know what the Magna Carta is, and most of you won't even Google to find out what it is. But it's an important date in history. Google told me that. So uh, here's my observation. The further we get away from those dates, the less relevant they come, less relevant they are, the less meaningful, the less personal they are. The further you move away from them. Again, good Easter dinner or lunch conversation to ask people, where were you? What were you doing on these dates? They're sort of, if you were alive for them, they're seared in your memory. But again, if you weren't, then they're not as significant. But yet think about Easter with me for a moment. Easter works the exact opposite way. 2,000 years ago, Jesus rises from the dead. And if anything, Easter is picking up momentum. It's more relevant, more meaningful, more personal for more people. In fact, Google told me that Easter is celebrated in 95 of 195 countries around the world, officially celebrated, and we know marked in many, many more. And as a part of any other significant day, Easter has this broad appeal and growing appeal, and it also has such significant personal appeal for so many so here's my hope and prayer for this morning, that we as a church will be reminded again of why Easter is so appealing, of the great personal appeal for us, what makes this day so significant. And if, if this day does not yet have personal appeal to you, if you haven't yet seen that, my hope and prayer for you is in the next moments, God may open your eyes to see why Easter is so significant, not only for you, but why it has been so significant for so many people around the world. So we've got a great Bible story to look at. It's Luke chapter 5. Let me just invite you to open up your Bibles, turn on your Bibles, and there we are going to see the appeal 
why Easter is so appealing. We saved this story, or we sort of planned to get here in our series on Luke on Easter Sunday because there's such a good resurrection picture here. You have to hold on for it. It's at the end. Don't worry. I'm going to get to the resurrection. It's there. But yet first, let's go through this story, and then at the end, I'll connect it to the resurrection. Three things, three learnings today for us from this story. So Luke chapter 5, verse 17, here's what it reads. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So Luke tells us, as he has repeatedly, Jesus is teaching. This is his ministry. He's there. He's teaching. The religious leaders have come. They got the best seats. They're sitting down. They're there. But people have come from everywhere, from every town and village. And they've come from further away, from Judea and Jerusalem, not only to hear Jesus' teaching, but also because he is healing the sick. And so as the story opens, that's the scene that we find a large crowd of people. So look down to verse 18. What happens next? Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right there in front of Jesus. I love this picture. These four guys, Mark tells us there's four. They've got this paralyzed friend of theirs on a mat. We would call it a stretcher. And they get, they're going to get him to Jesus. So they get to the house. And what's happened? It's full. It's full. You know, people are looking in the windows. Probably people are looking in the doors. There's no, hey, excuse me, excuse me. Can we get through? No one's budging. There's no way in to see Jesus. They are captivated by Jesus's teaching. No one's moving. And there was probably all, a lot of other sick people around there too. They probably brought sick. But in this moment, Jesus is teaching. Now, first century homes would have had two stories. The first story, sort of maybe one room, maybe a second room, not that large, but this home was probably very full. And then, then the second story would have been the roof. And that would have been supported by wood beams with some reeds and with some clay to to pack in on the roof. And so then they would live on the second story on the roof. Hot night, you'd sleep outside, you may eat out there, certainly socialize out there on the roof. It provided additional living space, probably stairs in the front going up to the second story. And so these four guys arrive, and I love these guys. They're great. We got to get our friend to Jesus. Okay, there's a crowd, and what do they say? What do they say? Here's what you guys did not think this morning. And again, there's not many seats left. But if you were driving here, you did not say, oh, wonder if they're out of seats. I can't get in the front door. I'll just climb up the roof and come down. There's actually a door there. You can come down a ladder and come into the auditorium. None of you thought that. None of you thought, we'll enter through the roof if it's too crowded here. Again, for those of you watching at home, you're not thinking now. I wonder if the Easter guests are going to come through the roof. They're not. But these guys are so creative. They think, let's dig a hole in the roof. Now, Luke says it was like lifting off tiles. The clay may have come off in tiles, but this was hard work. This was a hard-packed roof, and for them to make a hole big enough to get the stretcher down would have been considerable work. Just think of Jesus teaching and all of this going on over his head. And then they get the hole, and then somehow they rig up ropes. It's at least six feet high, and they lower this man down there in front of Jesus. I love their creativity. I love their commitment to work hard. 
But as I thought about these four, I love their sense of urgency. We've got to get them. We've got to get our friend to Jesus now. We can't wait a second. Here's what they would have known. Jesus at some point is going to leave the house. He's not staying there permanently. At some point, they could have just waited him out. It's not going to be a, you know, at some point the sermon's going to end. And they could have waited there for Jesus, but they're like, no, no, no. We're not going to wait. We've got to get him to Jesus now. And I've thought about their urgency and what's in their heart and all that they do and sort of work that back. I love how these four, what they think about Jesus, they are desperate for him. They are full of faith in him. And I think their efforts magnify the worth and the value of Jesus. Their efforts show where they placed Jesus. Their efforts show that, he held, that, they, held him, that they held him in very high esteem. So here's the thing I learned. First thing I learned from these four. Here for Easter, we'll say it this way. The best thing we can do for anyone is to bring them to Jesus. The best thing that we can do for anyone is bring them to Jesus. No matter the barriers, no matter the obstacles, no matter the effort, no matter the cost, the best thing we can do is bring them to Jesus. These four, they wrecked a roof. In fact, when Mark tells this story, he uses the same word twice. He says they unroofed the roof. That's how Mark describes it. But it's not about what they did. It's about who they are bringing the man to. It's not about their method. It's about their heart for Christ. And here, as I looked, Harbor, as I saw these men, and I saw how full their heart was for Christ, I was encouraged. I was encouraged. And I have to be careful with this, but here's, as I saw how full their heart was for Christ, here's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of you. It reminded me of us. Peoples whose hearts are full of Christ. And as I say that, let me just tell you what I mean by that. These men, their hearts were full of Jesus. And here's how I see that around Harbor. I see some of you, your heart is so full of Christ that you just want to seek after him. You just want to know him. And you may say, I don't fully understand the gospel. I don't fully get it, but I'm pursuing him with all of my heart. Others of you have found Jesus this year and your heart is full because you know what it means to be a follower of his. Others of you have demonstrated that by being baptized or being planted to be baptized. Many of you are demonstrating that by seeing, by, by demonstrating that your lives are being changed. Again, their heart was full of Jesus. And I love that we are a church where we are living out our faith, where our desire is to know more of Christ. Here's another way I say that around here, or I see that around here, our heart's full of Jesus. It's not only that we want to live out our faith, but we want to know the truth of Jesus. I so appreciate so many of you that say to me, Jeff, keep preaching, keep challenging us, keep, deep, keep taking us deeper. We want to know all the truth about Jesus. And when you know him, you want to go deeper into him. And it's not only a heart full to know Christ, it's a heart to live it out. I love so many of you, your growing boldness to tell people about Jesus. Some of you are doing it in public organized way, but so many of you are doing it in personal and organic ways. We are sharing the gospel. We are making disciples. We are starting churches. And I love the uniqueness, that way that God is working here. And our story, and I want to be careful, is increasingly being told. And when it's told, it's sort of like, hey, you're like those four people in the story. So Harbor today, just be encouraged. I see you as a church 
that's heart is full of Christ. And I hope you will just receive that and be encouraged by God's work in you and in our midst. Our heart for him brings great honor to him. And even as I say that, I really hope you'll receive that encouragement. And here's what you can sometimes do. You can say, well, these guys were like 10 out of 10. Their heart was just so full of Jesus. My heart is only a two for Christ. And if your heart's a two today, then just receive that you're a two and that that is God's work in your life. Today, we mark the resurrection of Jesus, all that he did for us. It's about his new life, all that he did, not about what we've done. And so just receive and thank God for the grace in your life and to the degree that he has filled your heart. And so as we are filled with Christ, here's what we know. The best thing we can do for anyone is bring them to Jesus. The best thing we can do for anyone is bring them to Jesus. But here's why. Here's the second idea. Because only Jesus knows what someone truly needs. The best thing we can do for anyone is bring them to Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus knows what someone truly needs. Look how this story unfolds. What happens next is not what we think is going to happen. Look down to verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, all of their faith, it's plural, but we think, what about this man who gets lowered down, the paralyzed man? Did you notice he doesn't ask anything? He doesn't speak. Jesus just forgives him. He looks at him and says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, here's what we know. God doesn't forgive sins unless we first repent of those sins. Right? Faith in Jesus has to come first before we receive forgiveness from Jesus. We know that God draws us, but yet we have a decision to make. We must first turn from our sin and trust in Christ. And so you look at this, and it doesn't, this man hasn't spoken anything. He hasn't said anything. And we may look in and say, well, does Jesus understand this? Is Jesus confused here at this moment? Right? Does he not get it? Jesus, don't you know that he has to make a decision? And we know that's not true. We know Jesus knows there needs to be some personal ownership. So what's happening here? What's happening? Why can Jesus look at this man who hasn't spoken a word and say, friend, your sins are forgiven? Well, here's what I think's happened, what's unfolded. Is this man has come to Jesus or he's been brought because he wants to be healed. He's paralyzed and certainly his friends want that to be fixed. And oftentimes this is like us. We sort of come to Jesus saying, Jesus, I want you to fix this thing about my life. But somewhere along the way, and maybe as he's hearing the teaching of Jesus, or maybe as he gets lowered down there in front of Jesus, right there in front of him comes eye to eye. Here's what I think begins to happen in this man's heart. He begins to come into the presence of greatness. He begins, he comes before the holy and living God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he begins to feel small. He begins to feel that Jesus is great and he is not. He begins to see that he's sinful, but Christ is holy. He begins to sense a little bit of unworthiness in his heart. And something begins to shift in him. He came thinking, I just want to get, you know, healed and that will be it. But now he realizes he's got a much greater need. And here's what I think he begins, or here's what we know he begins to realize. He needs forgiveness from God. And that's what Jesus offers him. 
Just think of those moments where he's beginning to realize I'm out of relationship with God, but yet I need forgiveness. And then Jesus says those wonderful words, friend, your sins are forgiven. He would never hear any better words in all of his life. We are all so guilty before God and what we all desperately need is forgiveness. God's greatest gift is forgiveness because it meets our greatest need. This is why Easter has become so personal for so many because it represents the forgiveness of Jesus towards us. It's Jesus saying to all who would turn to him, friend, your sins are forgiven. Samwin, thank you for sharing your story. So appreciate the way she told of her journey to Christ. And I loved how she said it. I found what I was looking for in Jesus. I found love and acceptance and I am forgiven. I loved how she said Jesus met my greatest need. Some of you know that I drive a 2008 Chevy Uplander. Quite proud of it. It's a wonderful vehicle. Uh, here's my little joke. I've said it before. The best car is a paid-for car, and it is paid for, so I love it. But yet, here's what I realized after I bought it. There's a slight design flaw in the Chevy Uplanders, and I had this fixed once, and the problem has uh, come back and progressively got worse. The problem was, is with the heating system is that when the car is stationary, it will never blow warm air. It just blows cold air. So it can sit in my driveway for an hour, and it will never warm up. Now that makes winter driving challenging because you don't want to hit any red lights. I'm like, I got to line up all the green lights so this thing can continue to stay heated and the windows, you know, unfrosted. If you ever drive with me, every time I stop at a red light, I have to turn down the heat and then it gets cold in there depending on how long the light is. And then we speed up, then we go again. And then I turn it up full blast and try to heat up the van again. Not great for winter driving. But especially, the problem has gotten worse, and then especially this winter. This winter was just so cold and so frigid, and uh, you know I wasn't quite realizing how bad it was, but then a couple of nights, there was three nights where I was going out late at night, and that's when it was the worst, you know, these cold winter nights. And the, the way the vehicles were lined up in our driveway, Sue said to me, she said, well, why don't you just take my car? You know, that way we don't have to switch the vehicles and I'm not going out tonight. I was like, sure, let me tell you about Sue's car. She's got this thing called like a remote starter where you like start it from the house. And then amazingly, the heat comes out of the car in the driveway. So you leave the house and you get into a warm car. It's unbelievable. And then she's got these heated seats. I got those things turned up all the way on five. I'm like, just, we're just going to heat this up. I'm going to be sweating by the time I get wherever I'm going because I just want to enjoy every moment of this heated vehicle. Here's, I had no, I had no idea how bad my van was until I got into her car and realized what it was to have heat in the middle of the winter in a vehicle. It was wonderful. And the reason I say that is this, is sometimes that's like forgiveness. We just don't realize what it is for our souls. We just miss out on what's happening in our hearts and what it means to be in right relationship with God or what it means to be out of right relationship with God. We just miss how deeply we need forgiveness from God. So some of you here today, you might say, you know, I don't know, I don't feel super guilty before God, but let me show you some signs of unhappy, some signs of unforgiveness, signs of being out of relationship with God so you could maybe identify it. 
For sometimes it can be, I just have this general unhappiness. For others, it could be, I feel a sense of inadequacy. For others, it could be, I feel shame, or I just feel like there's something wrong. For others, it can be, I just don't live up to the standard that I have or that God has. Or it's living with a weight and a burden of our past, of our sin. For others, it can be an uncertainty, just a general uncertainty. Those are just some of the lists of what it means to drive in life without having experienced, having God met our greatest need of forgiveness from him. And when he meets that, it changes everything. He cures us. He brings us into right relationship with him and he fixes our connection to him. And so this morning, I hope even as I say these words, for those of you that are in Christ, you might again on this Easter be reminded, be refreshed in all that it means your greatest need was forgiveness from God. And he said to each one of us, friend, your sins are forgiven. But there may be others of you here today who have never maybe realized that need, that this is why Easter has such broad appeal because it meets our deepest need. And if you've never realized that before, but God, even in these moments, may be opening your heart to him. Here's something I see that's so encouraging from this story. This man, he never speaks. He never says anything. His faith at best is imperfect. It's certainly unexpressed. It's small, it's fledgling. You know, he never gets anything out of his mouth, but yet Jesus is reading his mind. He knows something go, is going on in his heart, and Jesus is so eager, so willing, so passionate to give grace to this man, so eager to forgive him, so willing to move towards him. Here's the great thing is if you today would realize that your greatest need is forgiveness and you've never come to Christ and, and received that from him, you don't have to get it all right. You don't have to have your whole act together to come to him. He's eager, he's willing, he's ready. Just come, come imperfectly, come fledgling, come with small faith, come with unexpressed faith, but know as we come, he's so ready and willing to say, friend, your sins are forgiven. So wouldn't this, on this Easter Sunday, in the quietness of your own heart, you come to Christ and receive what he offers. It's the greatest need that we all have. Well, the story continues. Jesus says this, it's not what anyone was expecting, but the religious leaders look down to verse 21. Here's what they say. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You hear their question? Who is this man? That this is always the question about Jesus. And here's what they knew Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be God. Who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus was revealing who he was in that statement. Then how will Jesus respond? Look down to verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he asked the question. Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? So there's actually two different ways you can answer this question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Well, one way, which is the primary way here, which is easier for me to say, I forgive you or I heal you? Well, it's much easier for me to say, I forgive you. 
than it is for me to say, I heal you. And that was what Jesus was trying to hint at. But there's a second deeper way here. Think of this for a moment. Which was easier for Jesus to say? Get up, take up your mat and walk, or I forgive you. Well, this is where we pivot to Good Friday, what we marked two days ago. For Jesus to forgive this man, it was infinitely harder because he would have to go to the cross. He would have to pay the price for this man's sin and all of our sin. He would endure death on the cross. So in order for Jesus to meet this man's greatest need and offer him forgiveness, he would have to do the infinitely harder thing of die himself. But if we think back to the first reason then, how was this man to know that his sin was forgiven? How was everyone else going to know that his sin was actually forgiven? Well, Jesus was going to do the other thing, and that's what he does next. Look, verse 24. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus says, just so you all know, I am God and I have the power to forgive sin. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to heal this paralyzed man. He's going to get up. He's going to rise and he's going to take his stretcher and he's going to go home. How does this man know his sin is forgiven? Because he got up. How does this man know God has forgiven him? Because Jesus said, rise. And he rose. Do you see the Easter connection there? It's a little Greek word right there where Jesus said, get up and or rise. It's the same word. And we think back to what the angels said on the Sunday, the first Sunday of the resurrection. What did they say? He is not here. He has gotten up. He has risen. Why can this man get up? Why can this man rise? Because one day soon, Jesus will rise. Why does this, why does this man able to overcome his peril, be paralyzed and overcome that, be healed? Because Jesus one day soon will get up and rise. How does this man know his sin is forgiven? Because Jesus will rise. And how do we know that our sin is forgiven? Because Jesus got up from the grave. He rose. Imagine this man 10 years from now. He's reflecting back on this moment with Jesus. He came thinking he just wanted to get healed. He realized he had a much greater need. He didn't, you know, just unexpressed in his heart, but he realized how far he was from God and God just forgave him in that moment. He would just reflect back on those words, friend, your sins are forgiven. It would have been so significant. Imagine 10 years from now, he says to a friend, you know, I'm not really sure that Jesus forgave me. I'm just, I'm just doubting it. I'm just not so sure that he covered everything. His friend would say to him, you're an idiot. You were paralyzed and now you can walk. Remember, Jesus said, get up. That was your proof. You're forgiven of everything. And we get the same reminder today. How do we know that our sins are truly forgiven? When he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. How do we know? We get to look back just like this man got to look back. Look back on Jesus' resurrection. On this day, Jesus got up from the grave. He rose from the dead. Our sins are forgiven. This is what should bring us such joy, such praise, such amazement, such confidence that the tomb is empty. Christ has written, risen. So do you get this in your hearts? See, people that know this, this is the appeal of Easter. This is why it keeps growing. 
because more and more people see that Jesus has met their need, forgiven their sin. And we are amazed. We are amazed. And this is what happens in the story. It's not only us, but it, what happens on that day. And here's my third idea. To know Jesus is to be amazed by him. To know Jesus is to be amazed by him. When we understand this, we stand in amazement. And here's how Luke ends the story. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I love all the words Luke uses. They praised God. They gave praise. They were amazed. They were filled with awe. It was remarkable. It's just overflowing here what it means to encounter Jesus. I hope you see yourself in this story. Hope you see yourself. We end up coming to Jesus because we think we want him to fix a need or fix our lives. We think we're seeking him, but we're really not. But then in those moments as we're moving there, he reveals himself to us and we see our sin and we see his holiness and we feel so low. But then in that moment, what we sense is our greatest need is forgiveness. He meets us imperfectly for all of us in those first moments. And we come and we hear his words, friends, your sins are forgiven. And suddenly everything else doesn't matter because we know he has forgiven us and worked in our lives and everything else pales in comparison. But then we also live with the hope if he's met our greatest need, but as the years go on and as we look to the future, we live with the hope that the best is yet to come. He's met our greatest need now, but he will fix everything in the future. And we stand amazed at that as well. So as we end, I thought it would be appropriate just to try to pull those two ideas together the hope that we put in Christ now, but also the hope he brings for every area in the future. And since we're talking about a paralyzed person, I thought it would be appropriate to end with a quote from another paralyzed person. Her name is Joni Erickson Tata. You'll see a picture of her on the screen. Many of you know her. 17 years of age, she dives into shallow water and becomes a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. You know that she has written and spoken extensively about her deep love for Christ. And now as she is coming to the end of her life, she's reflecting on what it will be like that one day, the ultimate hope to be with Christ. And she writes this, as you see on the screen, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. And then here's what she says. Now I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on gratefully grateful glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his suffering. And I'll say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And then she writes, and now, Lord, if you like, you can send that wheelchair off to hell. <laughs> then she writes, the ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart. 
that is for us beyond all that we have ever experienced on earth. I love that. Love how she sees what Christ has done for us now and the hope there, but also what it means for the joy to come. Christ has met, in our, met, may, Christ has met our greatest need now, but one day he will fill our hearts with the great fountain of joy that we have never experienced on this earth. That is the hope of the resurrection today. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you saw that we needed forgiveness, that you died for us, but oh Christ, that you rose again. And we can be certain, Lord, of our forgiveness from you, that we are restored in relationship with you. And oh God, for the hope you give us for today. And Lord, we thank you that it does not end there. We thank you for the ultimate hope that this day brings us. And oh Lord, may that rest in our hearts today as we celebrate the news that was proclaimed 2,000 years ago. He is risen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our tradition at Harbor is to end every service with four words. It reminds us that we have a mission to share this good news with others. So let me invite you to stand this morning as we would dismiss with these words. I'll read some scripture first. They're appropriate to today. And then I'll dismiss us. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? And so with that scripture, Harbor, we are sent.